So I don't know if you recognize the fact that the power of grace is operational right now in your life. Right now. You are here by God's grace. You are here. So you have experienced it because you're here by God's grace. God's favor, God's power, which means his sufficiency, God's fullness. Not that just God gives us what we need, but God is what we need. He is grace and he gives us that grace. According to Hebrews chapter four, when we come with boldness to the throne of grace, he gives us whatever grace we need to help in the time of need. And God is his grace. He gives us of himself. As it says in John 1 16, that of his fullness, we have all received and grace after grace and all these All this grace, every grace, comes from the fullness of who he is. He not only supplies it, the supply is from himself. When we ask for peace, he who is peace gives us who he is. That's what it is to have God's grace. I will tell you, I have felt it for the last three weeks. Um, I told you I was speaking in Idaho and I had to speak on Saturday morning. I woke up with a raging sore throat and no voice. And I was rooming with Kathy Gilbert who immediately goes to prayer. It was so cute because I'd be on the, I'd be at the desk and I would say, she'd ask me a question. I'd be like, and she'd go, oh, sorry, I'm hard of hearing. And she'd get up and go, okay, say it again. She goes, oh, I've got to get my hearing check. I'm like, so I'm writing a note. I have no voice. It's not your hearing. It's me. But she was so cute because she had to keep getting up and running over and like doing her ear. And so she's praying for me because like, there's no voice. I have two sessions to do left. I get up, I speak two sessions. One is Minnie Mouse, one in that sultry thing. And then it's gone. It's absolutely gone. People are talking to me. It's gone. I am so sick. I can barely, you know, um, make it that night, get on the plane the next day. But, you know, I did it by grace. I got home. I went straight to bed. I was in bed for a week. I got up to do this study, went home, went to bed, got up um, the next day because we had to do the couples thing. Brian's like, you're well enough to do the couples. See, he's a terrible nurse. And so we go and like, wait, he's speaking because we usually do this thing together. I'm sitting in the chair just like. And then he's like, Cheryl, do you have something to say? All of a sudden, Grace, get up there. Oh boy, do I have something to say to those couples. And then it's gone. It's like, I got to go back to my chair. And so that was the couples. The next day I'm totally in bed. Then I get up for this. Did a retreat for Calvary Chapel Yorba Linda last weekend. Total grace to do it. When I got out to the conference center last week, I went straight to bed. I slept for three hours. Got up, spoke, went to bed, got up the next day, spoke twice, had to drive home or take a highway because the 91 was closed. It's all to say, grace is operational. Grace is very present. God gives us his grace. Paul said it's in our weakness that all of a sudden we realize this is God's grace. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm sick, I can't think straight. And you know, to try to find or take a highway when you're sick and all those other people know exactly where they're going and they're mad at you and they don't want to let you in. Like, what, what's your car doing? You don't know where you're going. We know where we're going. You stay out of here. And it's like, oh, let me in, please. I'm sick. And you know, to go over those mountain passes, sick, and your brain's like, 
are you safe? He keeps texting me like, Brian, I can't answer texts. I'm doing Ortega Highway, you know? And I don't have a voice, so it's not like I can go, I'm safe, you know, on the speakerphone. So all this to say, you know, every day we are experiencing God's grace, but sometimes we don't realize it. We don't realize it, but when we go weak, all of a sudden we're like, oh my goodness, how did I do that? God's grace, his sufficiency comes in. And that's what grace does. According to 2 Corinthians 12, 9, grace fills the gap. Grace fills in your deficiency. It fills it up with God. That's what grace does. Now, God's grace is glorious. Glorious. My um, Aunt Easy used to say, oh, glorious. That was just the thing that, you know, that was, oh, she came here years ago. And uh, her little adopted sister, my mom, the little orphan girl that was raised by my Aunt Easy's biological mother, um, who... Um, my mother spent her teen years rebelling from Jesus. And it was at a camp that my Aunt Easy had when my mom was 19 that my mom gave her life back to Jesus. So there was a strong bond between Aunt Easy and my mom. And Aunt Easy didn't know how much God had blessed Joyful Life Ministries. Didn't know, but you know, she was just so excited to hear that Kay was finally teaching the Bible. I mean, just really excited for her little sister. And so my mom said, Easy, come out for one of our um, Christmas um, coffees. And I remember my mom calling me up and saying, Cheryl, I need you to come up from Vista, and I need you to host Aunt Easy and Mary Jane. Aunt Mary Jane was just aunt because of friendship. But I need you to host them at the coffee, Christmas coffee. And I'm like, any opportunity to be with Aunt Easy, I was here. So I drove up. And I'm hosting them. And that was the year for those old timers like me that they did the omelets. Do you remember that? Some of you? They, they had all these people that were wearing white and black robes and they're, they're making omelets for everybody. <laughs> no, we don't do it like that anymore. And it's not going to happen again in your lifetime. But it was really cool when it happened. <laughs> we're poor. And they, they made these omelets and the coffee and you could have whipped cream and there were tables and there was a light drizzle. And I remember my Aunt Easy, all she could say is, oh, it's glorious. Oh, glorious. And after the, um, the coffee was over, I took him in my dad's office and my mom said, Easy, what did you think? And tears began to pour pour it down her face because she's thinking about the little girl that she picked up at a bus station from this young woman who couldn't raise this little girl and handed it over to my my adopted grandmother who I never met. That little girl, that little orphan girl, God putting joyful life into her hands. And what God had done, Easy was seeing all of the grace upon grace of God. And all she could say is, it's glorious. Why? Because God's grace is glorious. It's beyond earthly. 
It cannot be done on earth what God does by his grace. It is glorious. I'm just going to give you five reasons it's glorious. Just real quick, and we'll come back to these. It's glorious because it never gives up. Never gives up. Doesn't give up on you and like, well, I'm giving up on. God's grace never gives up. God's grace is glorious because it never lits up. It's as full today as it was yesterday and fuller tomorrow will be. God's grace is glorious because it never stops. God's grace is glorious because it never changes. And God's grace is glorious because he is glorious. We'll come back to all those things. Paul continues to answer the Romans' question about Israel. What about the nation of Israel? What about all those promises in the Old Testament? If salvation is by faith, by faith because of God's grace, what about the Mosaic law? What about the promises to Israel? How does this all work out? So number one, Paul begins to show these Romans that God continues to save Jews like the Gentiles through his grace. And Paul reminds the Romans, wait, I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish and I'm saved. So that means that Jews are getting saved and I'm the one bringing you the gospel. And he reminds these Romans in chapter 11, verse one, that he is also of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast his people away. He's not done with Israel as individuals. There are still, and we're still in Paul's time, Jews that were coming to the messianic hope through faith and being saved. Perhaps you remember that Paul, whenever he would go into a new city, he always went first to the synagogues to bring the gospel to the Jews. And he did not take it to the Gentiles until the Jews had rejected it. And he says, God has not cast away Israel. He hasn't cast away. He still has future plans. He has not given up. And then Paul brings up the example of Elijah. Now, Elijah, after that great experience on Mount Carmel, where he builds an altar and he has those who worship Baal, the priests of Baal, build an altar on Mount Carmel. And he says, the God who sends fire, he is God. Do we all agree to these terms? And everyone agrees to these terms. He lets the prophets of Baal build their altar first. He lets them choose the best sacrifice And he gives them the best time and the longest duration of time. And after hours, as these prophets of Baal have their ox up on the altar and they're crying out to Baal, no fire comes, no fire comes, no fire comes. So then Elijah says, my turn. And he takes the sacrifice. He belts up his own altar, puts the sacrifice on it, second choice. He has a trench dug around these rocks. He pours water over the sacrifice until the, until the sacrifice is drenched and the trench is overflowing with water. And then he says a simple prayer and boom, the fire of God falls and not only 
consumes the sacrifice. It consumes the stones. The stones, rocks don't burn. But these rocks are completely consumed and the water is absolutely gone. I mean, it's like, boom, and there's nothing there. And the people of Israel begin to say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, no doubt, Elijah thought after such an incredible demonstration of God's power, all the people are going to turn and begin to follow the God of Israel and turn away from Baal. And not only that, Elijah sees a cloud the size of a man's hand, which means that rain will return to Israel after this three years of drought. And instead of Ahab returning to God, instead of Jezebel repenting or being, you know, sent back to uh, Sidon, instead of the people of Israel overthrowing the ungodliness in their country, Jezebel remains in power and sends him a threatening note and says, you know what? I'm going to get your life by this time tomorrow. You're going to die. And Elijah is so discouraged by this. He's afraid and he begins to run. And what he really is saying to God as he hides in this cave is, God, I'm hiding in this cave while you wipe out Israel. It's over. It's done. There's no hope for Israel. No hope at all, God. Go ahead. Destroy And we know this story. God calls him out to the friend of the cave. And there's a fire. And there's an earthquake. There's a strong wind. And then, and God is not in the fire, the earthquake, or the strong wind. But then there's a still small voice. And God begins to speak to Elijah and say to this prophet, You think you're all alone. But I have reserved for myself over 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, the population of Israel at that time was probably over a million. So 7,000 is not a huge amount. It's a remnant. It's a small amount that have not worshipped the Samaritan calf. And they have not worshiped Baal. They're still serving the living God, preserved and reserved by God. And he says, it's the same thing today. God's not going to destroy the nation of Israel. He's working. He's still got that remnant through all the ages that he works with, that he preserves and he reserves for himself. David said in the Psalms, God has set apart for himself he who is godly. Isn't that like an incredible thought that God's like, you're godly. I'm going to reserve you for myself. We're going to spend intimate time together. And he's done that with every generation. While the rest of the nation was steeped in idolatry and ready for judgment, God was protecting, visiting, and blessing 7,000 who still followed him. And according to verse 6, Paul says there is still an election or a choosing by grace for all men. God chooses men based on his grace. In other words, our choosing is not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it. 
but simply because we've responded to the offer of grace. He's offering grace, and we say, we'll take it. We want it. Paul says that it cannot be received by works because then it would be earned. And grace, by its very nature, is undeserved. It is getting what you don't deserve. And if it's by works, then the semantics are totally wrong. Because grace means to get what you don't deserve. God would have to come up with a different term. He wouldn't have used the term grace. Then in verse 7, he says, why didn't Israel corporately receive it? Why as a nation have they not received God's grace? And he says, because they sought it by works. And again, it's grace. So it has to be accepted. Not on the basis of what I've done, but on the basis of what God has done. See, Israel has never been like Jesus. Jesus obeyed God 24-7. Never had a thought that displeased God. In fact, he said, I always do those things that please my Father. There was never a time or a thought that Jesus allowed or did that did not please his father. So Israel did not obtain it because their works weren't good enough, moral enough, consistent enough, or thorough enough. And what happened? They were hardened in unbelief. God ratifies men's choices by his grace. By God's grace, he honors the choice we make. If we make the choice To reject God's grace, God says, I'll honor that choice. If we make the choice to receive God's grace, God says, I'll honor that grace. He allows men to choose and he validates that choice. Now, God, according to verses 8 through 10, was not taken back or surprised by Israel's unbelief. (laughs) I mean, God didn't go, oh, no, they didn't receive my Messiah. Now what? He already, in his foreknowledge, knew that they would not receive Jesus. And Paul shows how God already knew this, God's foreknowledge about this, through Moses. It's interesting because I've been in um, Deuteronomy, or as my young son used to call it, do no wrong to me, in my personal devotions. In Deuteronomy 29.4, God says, yet uh, Moses says, Yet he, the Lord, has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. He was telling the children of Israel, even in this chapter, chapter 29, God's going to take you into the land. He's going to keep all the promises he's given you. But I know that when you get into the land, you're, you're going to fall into idolatry and unbelief because you don't have the eyes and the heart to really believe. Jesus would say to the Pharisees, I know that you don't have God's word abiding in your heart because if you had God's word abiding in your heart, you would have believed in me. You would have received me. That's a sign that God's word is abiding in his heart. Paul also shows that it was predicted through David. Their eyes would be darkened and they would not be able to see. And through Isaiah, for the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes. God knows 
that they're not going to receive their Messiah. God already knew. And he said, and I'm going to ratify their unbelief. And I'm going to use it. In verses 11 through 15, we see how God says, I'm going to use it. In other words, God says, I'm going to factor this in to all my plans. And this is how I'm going to use it. To open the door of salvation wide to the Jews. And Paul says, their fall and failure to receive God's grace through the Messiah Jesus means riches for the world. And then God says, not only am I going to enrich the Gentiles and the world, opening salvation to them, but I'm also going to use the Gentile salvation to provoke the Jews to jealousy. How? By giving the Gentiles who receive God's grace all the blessings, the favor, and the promises that were given to Israel. So we can claim all the promises of the Old Testament by faith through grace because of Jesus Christ. And I I think I say this every week that according to first uh, sorry, Second Corinthians chapter one, all the promises of God are in Christ Jesus. And Paul goes on to say, and all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yea to the glory of God. You know, sometimes you'll read like, oh, is that for the Jews? As you read, you know, Isaiah. Yes, it is. And it will be fulfilled. But right now it's to you through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the ultimate Jew. He is, he is the Jew, the Israel, the ruled by God. Who kept the law gloriously. And then died for the sins of the world. And in his will and testament wrote our names. So all the promises that were deserved to him have come to us. So God uses it to provoke the Jews to jealousy. As they look at us. I I remember I was on an airplane. And I was sitting next to a young rabbinic student. And he was studying his rabbinic book. And I kind of looked over and said, what you studying? And he says, oh, I'm studying about Abraham. I said, oh, I love Abraham. And he looked at me and goes, you love Abraham? And I'm like, oh, yes, I love Abraham. And, you know, I went through, I said, I love his call. That when God says, you know, get up from your, your family and, and your city and I and I will be your God and I will be a shield to you and And I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. And I said, and I love his covenant of faith with God. All he had to do was believe in God. And all these promises were his. And we began to talk about Abraham. And he said, you're the only person I've ever met that knows so much about Abraham, Jew or or Gentile. How do you know all this about And I said, well, you might think they're your scriptures, but I love the whole Bible. I love all the promises. I love all the covenants of God. And I went on to say, are you okay with talking about Jesus? Because I'd like to just say a few things that Jesus said, if you're okay with it. But if not, we can stick with the, you know, with with your scriptures. And he goes, no, I'm curious. And I got to just like radically go into All the promises that are mine through Christ Jesus and that Jesus was Jewish. I mean, everyone looks kind of shocked when you say, and Jesus was Jewish. What? 
you know, yes, of the, of the seed of Abraham, a descendant of David, that he fulfilled over 300 prophecies given in the Old Testament. I mean, he was like glued. Not only that, but my seatmate, who was my friend, was praying for me that the Lord would open his eyes. It was an amazing time. But I, I felt that I was provoking him to jealousy. He's like, I've never met anyone who loved God so much. I've never met anyone who knew the word so well. And I'm like, really? Well, let me tell you a little more. <laughs> Years ago, Bing Crosby was offered this, I was watching this interview with Bing Crosby years ago, and they were asking him if he had any regrets. And he said, I have one regret. And they said, what's that? He said, I wasn't the first person to record Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And he said, it was offered to me for my Christmas album, my first Christmas album. They offered me Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And he said, I looked over the lyrics and said, this is a stupid song. Nobody will ever like it. So he said at that time, they gave it to an unknown named Gene Autry. And Gene Autry sang Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It's the only song in all of history to be on number one on the charts for only one day. And it sold in one day 1,750,000 copies of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It not only put Gene Autry on the map, it gave Gene Autry, you know, a, a, a platinum record. I mean, all these things happened to Gene Autry, made Gene Autry a millionaire. And altogether, all told, it sold over 12 million copies for Gene Autry. Well, years later, Bing Crosby, regretting not singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, put it on his second Christmas album. And I thought, you know, he was, and he said the only reason he'd sang it was because he saw how well it had done for Gene Autry. Now, he said, it didn't do as well for me because I was the second guy to record it. He said, but I refused it the first time it came around, but the second time it came around, I received it. You see, that's what God is doing with the Jews. Jesus came, and the first time they rejected him. But now they're looking at the blessings on our life and how we've been enriched. And the second time when Christ comes, they will receive him. Paul says that presently God is using their unbelief to reconcile the world to himself. And in verse 30, he tells us that we've all actually received mercy through their unbelief, through their disobedience. And he will use their return when they come back nationally to showcase his power and to bring life from death and their fullness for greater riches to the world and the Gentiles. If you think it's good now, wait till, wait till Israel nationally comes back to Jesus. I think of Ezekiel's vision of a valley of dry bones that God raises up all these dry bones, giving life to death, bringing to life that which was considered dead. So God factored the Jews' unbelief into his great plans. Again, verses 16 through 32. And God promised to save Israel as a nation. Now, Paul uses the example of an olive tree. Now, any Jew reading olive tree would, would immediately think 
of the nation of Israel, because that is an analogy that is used throughout the Old Testament. And Paul says, if the first fruits are holy, then the lump is holy. In other words, if we are holy, it means because we have partaken of something that is holy from the lump, from what God has given to Israel, we've received. When Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, and she says, you know, wait, where does salvation come from? You know, you Jews say to worship in Jerusalem, and our forefathers say to worship at Mount Gerizim. What's the truth? And he said to this woman, he said, salvation is of the Jews. This is the origin. It comes from God's promises to Abraham. Everything goes back to God's promises to Abraham. That is the root. That's the lump. That's the origin. And it was a covenant of faith. John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3 warns the Jews that have come out to be baptized and to hear him, he says, the Messiah is coming and already the ax is laid to the bottom of the tree. In other words, already those branches are being cut off and God is now requiring that all men come to him through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. The temporary or the condition of unbelief for Israel as a nation is only temporary. God has got plans. He's factored in their unbelief, but he's also put that in his greater plan to save all of Israel, to graft them back in at one time. And so Paul then warns the Gentile believers, don't get haughty. And don't act superior to the Jews because they're still, they're still God's chosen people and his plans for them are not over. And if they were cut off so you could be brought in, God is able and will graft them back in that you might be partakers together of the mercies that they've received. In other words, Paul is saying to these believers, Hold tight to Jesus. Reminds us of John chapter 15, where Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me. So Paul is saying to the Gentiles, you need to hold close to Jesus and have respect for these people and be desiring their salvation. Just like he said in chapter 9 of Romans, that he had such an affection for the Jews, he could be cut off in order to see them brought in. Then he tells, in verse 25, he he writes to these Romans and says, I don't want you to be ignorant about God's future plans for Israel. He said, if you're ignorant of God's future plans, you'll be wise in your own opinion and your heart will become hard. That's the danger of when you're ignorant. Now, there's a branch of Christianity that is called all millennialists. They don't believe in the millennium. They don't believe in what John writes in Revelation chapter 20, that there will be a thousand year reign. When Jesus returns to the earth, he will reign for a thousand years in which Satan will be bound. Now I believe it because it seems pretty clear that that's what John's writing about. 
But there are some Bible, Bible teachers, I don't know if that's the right term, but there's some people, some theologians, let's give them that one, some theologians that teach that Revelation, the book, is all symbolic. And even though it uses symbolism, it is not all symbolic. God has plans for Israel. And and I want to give you just a, a quick synopsis of God's plans for Israel. Presently, God has allowed unbelief until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We're living in the time of the fullness of the Gentiles. This is our time. Some call it the dispensation of grace. This is a time when the gospel has gone out to the whole world. And when Gentiles are receiving the gospel. But there is a time when it's all fulfilled and it will come to the end. And I believe that time is at the rapture of the church. It's between Revelation chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 4. When God says, come up hither. And we're in that time right now. We're in the fullness of the Gentiles when God's spirit is being poured out and there's a conviction of sin and we're responding to the grace of God and the call of grace. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, perhaps you remember that Gabriel comes to Daniel and he says, 70 weeks are determined for Israel. Uh, And he says, actually, he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, speaking to Daniel, who's a Jew, and your holy city, speaking of Jerusalem. Now, we know from the text in Daniel that he was interceding for Israel with fasting and prayers, with his window open toward Jerusalem, praying three times a day. And as he had been praying and praying, the angel came to him, and the angel says to him, from the day that you set your heart to pray and to seek the Lord, I was commissioned to you. And so this angel Gabriel comes and he says, there are 70 weeks. And here's what God's going to be doing through the 70 weeks. Now, each week represents a seven-year period. Okay? So there's 70 weeks. And he says, this is what's happening. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up or fulfill fulfill all vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Then he goes on to say 62 and seven weeks or 69 weeks would begin at the decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and they would culminate in the Prince of Peace coming to Israel and then being cut off, but not for himself. And as we know from the decree mentioned in Nehemiah by Artaxerxes to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem until the coming of Jesus Christ was exactly 69 sevens, taking the Jewish calendar, which is 360 days, not 365 days like ours. And it leaves you right out um, um, into uh, the time that Jesus came. Now, I didn't get into all of that because that's not my point and I need to do this quickly, but I could give you the numbers, but I'm not going to. 
But there's still a seven-year period, right? Because we're only at 69 weeks. So what about that last week? Well, between the 69 weeks and the 70th week, there's this huge gap. What is that huge gap? It's the time of the Gentiles. And that's what the angel says to Daniel. During this time, Jerusalem will be trodden under the foot of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So it's right there in Daniel chapter 9. There is this time that God is opening up salvation to the Gentiles. Now, the last week, the 70th week, is the tribulation. It's the seven years of the tribulation. People look for the church in the tribulation. Where's the church in the tribulation? Let me tell you something. It's, we're not there. We're in heaven saying, worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to, to, open this, to open the scroll and loose the seals thereof. For he has redeemed us. Only the church can say he has redeemed us from every tongue, tongue tribe, and, and can, whatever. Yes. Thank you that you're aware of this. This isn't. Only the church can sing that song. Only the church has been bought. So here's the time of the Gentiles, which includes any Jew who comes to salvation through Jesus Christ. That's where we are. We're in heaven. So who's in the tribulation? You see, the tribulation does not have to do with the church. The tribulation is about bringing Israel back to their Messiah. It's all about bringing Israel to the end of themselves as a nation so that they will receive their Messiah. All their props are taken away. Every nation turns against them. They are attacked from all sides. They're deceived by the Antichrist. Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, the angel says to Daniel, this is what the tribulation is about. When the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Remember how Jesus said to the religious community, to the Jews, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This tribulation is to make the people of Israel cry out and call out and say, Jesus, son of God, our Messiah, come back, come and save us. Hosanna, save now. During the tribulation, the Antichrist will make and break a treaty with Israel. Moses and Elijah, the two prophets of Israel, the, you know, Moses was a prophet, Elijah's a prophet, Moses also represents the law. God sends the two big ones to evangelize Israel, the two most revered uh, prophets to evangelize Israel. We're told that 144,000 Jews will be sealed, saved, and sustained valiantly by the Lord through the tribulation. Then, then Jesus will return to earth. Zechariah 14.4 says his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives with the saints. That's us. Revelation chapter 19. And at that point, he will defeat the Antichrist and his hordes and reveal himself to the nation of Israel. 
And in Zechariah 12, 10 through 14, we read that Israel will grieve and mourn for their past rejection of Jesus. They will look on me whom they have pierced. So Zechariah says, they will look on me, on God, whom they have pierced, and they will grieve for him as for an only son. And then Zechariah tells us that it will be families apart by themselves, the tribe of the Levites all by themselves. And what does this mean? Paul says this means, this this time when Israel receives Jesus again, it means greater riches to the world. Why? Because this brings in the millennium, the thousand-year rule of Jesus Christ on the earth. Now, this isn't the new heaven and the earth. This is just the preparation, the thousand years. This is when every promise to Israel is fulfilled. All those promises that you find in Isaiah 35. All the promises about the the ox and and the cougar eating grass together. The lion and the lamb laying down together. All the promises of peace and joy. Those are all fulfilled during this thousand-year reign. Because people are like, well, I don't see a purpose for the millennium. The purpose is God will fulfill every single promise that he ever made to Israel during that thousand years. They will all be realized. This is where all the nations of the world will flood to Israel and they'll bring presence and glory to Israel. This is what is happening during the millennium. And it means greater riches to the world and for the Gentiles. The deliverer will come out of Zion. Verse 26, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Zechariah 14.1 says, in that day, God will open a fountain for Israel that will cleanse them from their sins. The fountain is Jesus Christ and they will realize it and come to faith. And oh, oh, what glory that is going to usher in when Satan is bound for a thousand years and we will live in the millennium with all the promises of God. Still, we're, there's still gonna be some corruption. Sin will still be there, but we will see what life would have been like and what life is like even with sin, when Jesus is on the throne. And then just when you say, this is glorious, it gets better. God says, you know what? Let me give you a new heaven and new earth. Let's just get rid of sin entirely. And it's going to be greater riches even yet. God's grace is glorious because it never gives up. God is always reaching out to men. He is always saving men. He's always reserving a remnant. He never gives up altogether. He always holds on and holds out. God's grace is glorious because it never lits up. It never diminishes. He has factored unbelief, rejection, and evil into all his plans. His grace knows all these things and has transformed all these things into uses for good and riches and life from the dead. God's grace is glorious because it never stops. It's a continual offer, always being offered to any man at any time. 
It is glorious because it never changes. As Paul tells us, that the plans of God and the call of God are irrevocable. God's going to make it happen and nothing can stop God's grace. It's glorious because it cannot be stopped. God's plans are eternal. God's plans are certain and his gifts will never be taken away. God chose Israel and he will bring Israel back into all the promises. Every word written in the Bible and spoken by the prophets will be fulfilled. There is not one word in this book that will not come to fruition. Every single thing, as Daniel said, all that God has written will be sealed up or completed, fulfilled. That's what God is going to do during these 70 weeks. God's grace is glorious, though, because he is glorious. God's grace reveals his wisdom, his wisdom, his understanding of men and time and sin as salvation, as well as the greatness of his eternal plans. As it says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now, they say that wisdom is the application of knowledge. You know, sometimes we can meet people and we call them bookish. You know, they, they have a lot of information, but they don't know how to apply it in the right way. I have a friend, she's, she like knows all this information. You know, you can, you can talk about anything and she'll go, that, blah, 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 and this list of facts comes out but I swear she cannot make a left turn in her car. She always cuts somebody off. She's like the worst driver I know because she doesn't know how to apply all that knowledge to driving. But God takes his knowledge, his knowledge of what he knows, and he applies it perfectly. God knows everything that was, everything that is, and everything that is to come. And he weaves this together into great plans. He has unsearchable judgment, the wisdom of his decrees. Unsearchable means that the more you look into them, the more glorious they get. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. It gets more and more glorious. Have you ever noticed that? The more you read and the more you understand the Bible, the more you understand what Jesus did on the cross, the more you go glorious. I mean, you're just like, oh my goodness, it all works together. This is the most amazing book. It's not like it gets like, wait, that doesn't make sense. No, the more you grow in Christ, the more it all makes sense. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, who's trying to understand all these, like, we know you come from God, but, you know, how does this all work together? Jesus is like, Nicodemus, you're never going to understand it until you're born again. And then it will all begin to make sense. And it will begin to make more and more sense. And it will go deeper. And it will get greater. And you'll be like, I'm astounded by the greatness of our God and the greatness of his plans. How unsearchable. Years ago, Brian and I were in a, um, Cornwall in a place called Polseth. It's this amazing beach, and we found this little walking path. And while everybody else was getting ice cream, because 
we were on yet another diet, we decided to take a walk along these paths. And we turned a corner, it's like along the beach. And the scenery before us was so beautiful, you couldn't take it in. It was like these, these black cliffs going into this blue, frothy ocean. And we're like, oh, there's another, there's another turn, another bend in the path. Let's just check it out. We go around that path, and all of a sudden, it's a field of wild flowers with the same black cliffs going into the same ocean. And Brian's like, there's one more bend. We ended up walking for like three hours. And we finally had to turn around because we realized something about that path in Pulsat. It just kept getting more and more beautiful. We were like totally addicted. Like we couldn't stop. And we're like, we have to turn around because we'll walk for the rest of our lives. I mean, it was that glorious. I mean, we turned a corner and there are all these lambs like, meh, meh, you know, like glad you finally made it. It was like, and they were so adorable. You know, as they dotted these green fields, and then the cliffs went from black to these sheer white cliffs. Uh, 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 we were just like, oh, and then a bunny went across our path. It's like, it's a bunny. You know? But it just kept getting more and more beautiful. Well, that's what I want to tell you about God's judgment. You'll turn a corner and you'll go, that was a good judgment. But then you turn a corner and you're like, oh, but this is glorious. This is right. The more you go, the deeper you go into God's judgments and God's ways, the more right they are. The more glorious they are. The more you go, yes, yes. Let God be true and every man a liar. God's plans are so awesome that we couldn't begin to fathom their glory. Have you noticed how God always does the unexpected? He, he does something, uh, as Paul says in Ephesians, that is it's exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. It's above our considerations. Like, whoa, I, I didn't know you were going to do it that good. I asked for a quarter and you gave me a million dollars. Thank you. I've told you the the story before, but Lillian um, Kalman, who wrote Streams in the Desert, she and her husband were about to go on the mission field to Japan, and they had sold everything they owned, sold everything. They had been very wealthy. They sold everything like, God will provide. So they go to church that night. They're leaving the next day for Japan. The church takes an offering for them. They get the offering, and it's a quarter. They've sold everything, just given it over to God. This offering, they get a quarter. And she's thinking, she even took off her wedding ring and gave it in the offering. All her jewelry, everything. And now they've got a quarter and they're going to Japan. And her husband looks at her, Charles Kalman, and he holds up the quarter and he goes, look at this. We've got 25 cents and all the promises of God. And with that, before World War II, they got the Gospel of Matthew in Japanese to every household in Japan with 25 cents and all the promises of God. He does the unexpected. He doesn't need money. He uses grace. God does the unexpected. He works above and beyond. God's plans also showcase his good intentions. We see through the plans of God, it's good. It's not for evil, it's for good. It's to 
get the lion laying down with the lamb. It's to get the oxen and the um, other dangerous animal eating hay together. It's to allow the child to reach into the den of the cobra and not be hurt, but go, look, mom, a snake. It's for good. It's for glory. No one has told him what to do. There's no counselor like, you should do something good, God. You really should. Or be good. Be good, God. There's no counselor. He is good. He owes no one anything. He doesn't have to give or do good. For who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor or who has given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Who gave to God first? God is in debt to no man. He doesn't owe us anything. We owe him everything. He owes us nothing. He's doing these good things because he is good. Because he abounds in goodness. Abounds in goodness. Then Paul tells us, For of him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. God has done all these great things for his own good pleasure, through his own power, and for his own glory, because it glorifies God to bless and save men. It makes him happy to bless you. It makes him happy to save you. It elates him. In fact, he gets so happy when someone gets saved that all the angels begin to rejoice. He alone deserves all glory forever and ever. As we look at God's forever plans for the Jews, we see God's glorious grace on display. What a comfort today to know that God's glorious grace is extended right now to us. Right now, this grace is not only available, it's not only accessible, but we're already living in it. We just haven't acknowledged it like we should. What a glory today for us to realize that God's grace does not give up on us. You might have failed, you might have sinned, you might have made a bad left turn yesterday. But his grace has not given up on you. His grace has not lit up on you. It's not diminished today. You still have as much grace yesterday. His mercies are new every morning. His grace has been refreshed today, this morning. It's bountiful. God's grace never stops. It never comes to an end. He keeps giving and giving and giving again. God's grace never changes toward you. He doesn't take it back. He doesn't decide not to give it. He doesn't change it. Like, well, your grace only receives three quarters of what you need. He doesn't change his grace towards you. His grace is grace. And it's all grace. God's grace is as glorious as he is. And he is all glorious. That's how glory is his grace is. That's how rich his grace is. It's as rich as God himself. Take heart today because this grace is ours through Christ Jesus. This is the grace we have access to. This is the grace in which we stand. And this is the grace that empowers us 
and we have been grafted into this grace by grace. As glorious as today's grace is, let me tell you, as glorious as today's grace is, and it is absolutely glorious, tomorrow's grace is greater, richer, and fuller. Because through Jesus Christ, grace only grows deeper, richer, and fuller. And that grace is ours. Let's stand up. Lord, this morning, we are women in need of grace. And Lord, we want this grace. And we thank you that all we need to do is ask for it. And it is ours because it was already won for us through Christ Jesus. And all we need is to believe and acknowledge all the grace that has been given to us through Christ Jesus. As, you, as your word says, that in his fullness, we receive grace after grace. Lord, we pray first that you would help us to acknowledge this grace, that you would open our eyes, that we might see all the grace places all around us. Lord, we pray then that we might abound in grace, that we might access this grace over and over again. Oh, Lord, let us be those who recognize the glorious grace in which we stand and call upon this grace for all our needs, for all our sufficiency. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.